Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. This is the week between Christmas and New Year's, and I'm taking the week off. So I won't be publishing a new episode. Instead, we'll be revisiting one that I picked from a couple years ago, an interview with Colm Holland on The Secret of the Alchemist. And I think this is a great episode to look at, a great conversation about alchemy, the spiritual journey, transformation, and it's particularly poignant as we think about a new year starting. So I appreciate so much you listening to this podcast all year round, your support. If you're a donor, if you've rated or reviewed the podcast in every way you supported this, if you've shared it with friends or family, thank you, thank you so, so much. And I really appreciate you. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I have with me today a special guest, Colm Holland. And he is the author of the recently published book, The Secret of the Alchemist. Now I'm gonna tell you, I read his book and about halfway through, I just kind of had this urge to give him a call or you know get on a plane or something so that we could have a deeper conversation because there's so much great stuff in this book. It's, it's, it's so much about what I love to teach. I love the story of the alchemist. I love the hero's journey. I love Carl Jung psychology, uh, the teachings of Robert Johnson, and it's all in here. And before I go any further, Colm, I'd like to let you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and particularly how you connected with Paolo Coelho, uh, who is the author of The Alchemist, because you've got this unique kind of magical encounter that you had that inspired this book. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about that. Thanks, Carol. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Um, on your podcast today. And um, yeah, I will start with my, I call it an encounter, if you like, with Paolo Kahlo, although it did take place, it, it was, wasn't um, magical in the sense of the setting. What happened was that at the time when I was 40 years old, back in 1993, those of you that were born before then will remember, um, I worked at HarperCollins Publishers. I was a middle manager in the marketing department, and my role was to decide what books would be published in Australia, because I was based in Sydney. Uh, my wife and I emigrated to Sydney and lived there for 25 years. And I, uh, on a Friday afternoon, a pile of manuscripts back in 1993, everybody, the internet didn't exist. And stuff used to arrive in the mail and the mailboy used to drop this package on my desk on a Friday afternoon. And I would sift through and decide which books we were gonna publish in the Australian division of HarperCollins and which ones not. And as I leafed through, um, I discovered that there was a manuscript by a guy called Paolo Kahlo and the book was called The Alchemist, and nobody had ever heard of him at the time. Um, and what I loved about the uh, the cover, which was just an A4 copy, um, and it was purple, and it was an A4 piece of paper, and it was stapled to the manuscript. I should have kept the cover. I should have kept <laughs> the staple manuscript. 
I later discovered I was the fifth person in the world to read the story in English. Wow. Paulo was Brazilian. He wrote in Portuguese. The book had been published in Brazil. It had been quite successful, sold about half a million copies, which was pretty good in those days. And um, we had, our company had decided to, to publish the English edition globally. And so I grabbed the manuscript, broke all the rules, took the manuscript home with me on the weekend when I normally would reserve it for family and, and kids. And on Sunday afternoon, I read the book from cover to cover, like so many people do in one sitting. And I just knew in that knowing sense that one has, if you've been any on any kind of spiritual journey, which I had uh, prior to, to reading this book in my life, I just had that sense of knowing that this book was going to be a global bestseller. So I told the company that. I said I wanted a ridiculous amount of copies for Australia. They thought that somebody accused me of being drunk. I wasn't. <laughs> um, and, you know, we could lose money if we overpublish, because I, I knew that, and I was normally very conservative. But on this occasion, I just knew this was going to be a global bestseller. The book has sold more than 85 million copies. To give you some perspective on that, Paolo held the Guinness Book of Records for the most books sold of a single by an author in his own lifetime or her own lifetime. He's only ever been beaten by J.K. Rowling oh, and wow. ha Harry Potter. So that gives you a perspective. Mm -hmm. So for a time there, he had sold more books than any other living author in the history of publishing ever since Caxton Press. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so... Um, Paolo discovered about my enthusiasm. And when he came to Australia to do a book tour, he invited myself, my wife, a publicity director, out for a meal into a restaurant. So this was my encounter. He took us out to a restaurant and um, he wanted to just thank us, just the six of us there, um, for our enthusiasm for the book. And this was before it had sold millions and millions and millions of copies. And he turned to my publicity director and said, I really want to thank you. I've got a gift. I've got a present for you. And he pulled this little dress diamond ring out of his pocket. Um, it was worth a couple of thousand dollars. It was beautiful. And uh, we went, oh, you know, she was in tears. We were clapping. Um, the people in the restaurant were all looking around wondering what was going on. Because nobody, this is the wonderful thing, because it was so early days, nobody knew who Paolo Kaler was. Yeah. Nobody would have... If he, if he tried to go to a restaurant in Sydney now, he'd be swamped because he's a familiar character. So hence, you know, the price of celebrity and fame. Um, but then he turned to me and he said, oh, come on. He said, I want to thank you too. And so I've actually asked God what I should give you. And I'm thinking, oh, a gold Rolex would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> How shallow is that? that just so that I'm telling you that because it, it's, an, it's a, a symptom of where I had come from and where I was at that moment in my life, that my immediate thought was something material. Sure. Um, well, he'd just given somebody a diamond ring. I, you know, I thought we were in the jewellery department. Um, sure. But <laughs> it, apparently God didn't ask him to give me that. God asked Paolo to spend a day of his time doing what he called his alchemy magic just on my behalf. 
And the result of the alchemy, alchemy magic would be this, that the, the, whatever I wanted, whatever I decided was, was my deepest heart's desire, the universe would thereon give me that. And the only condition Paolo said that I had to comply with was that I needed to decide what I wanted, mm -hmm. intimating that that was my problem. Mm -hmm. And it still is. And I think it's pretty typical of many of us is that we have conflicting desires. We have conflicting scripts. We have conflicting wishes that go on between our, our logic, our mind, our heart, our emotions, whatever. So um, I heard what he had to say, and I must admit, initially I was really disappointed because I really, really wanted a gold Rolex at that time. Because the irony is I could have bought, you know, 100 gold Rolexes or more if I wanted since. But um, at the time, that was my heart's desire. And um, I didn't get a gold Rolex. What I did get was a beginning of a shift in my psyche that began with that evening in the restaurant that I had not expected. And the shift was that there was a deep discontent in my heart. I was married, happily married, kids, love my kids. Everything was going swimmingly. I was in a really good position in, a, in one of the largest publishing companies in the world. Some would say I'd arrived, but my heart was discontent. And I had begun slowly to, to disregard my heart. So slowly, just creepingly over years, several years, I had told my heart, look, I'm really sorry, heart, but what you really want just ain't going to happen. It's, it's not a possibility. So be quiet, go away, leave me alone. And the more I did that, the more depressed I became. I'm using the word depressed, not in the clinical sense, I'm, I'm using it in a just a demeanor sense. Um, and I felt it. I didn't want to go to work in the morning. I dreaded the commute to the office. I dreaded the meetings that I had to go to. I had no spark. I had no enthusiasm. There was no joy in what I was doing. I mean, I was publishing books, for example, uh, A Course in Miracles by Marianne Williamson. I was publishing Joseph Campbell. Um, I was publishing Dr. Wayne Dyer. Some of the, the greats, you know, people say, wow, what a job. What, right. You're at the you pinnacle know. of your life. Yeah. yeah I, you know, if I'm just at a university and I could be, you know, if I could have reached, you know, the point that you were at, Colin, I'd be, you know, I'd be over the moon. Well, I, I was, but when I got there, I wasn't over the moon because it wasn't really my heart. Still. What I, what I discovered after meeting Paolo is that my heart was beginning to have a voice again. And the and my heart was telling me that I wanted to be master of my own universe, that I wanted to be in control of what I did day to day, no longer answering to other people. But what I wanted was to create my own vision and my own business. And that's what I wanted next for my life. And then stuff began to happen. So the more I listened to my heart and be, 
and begin to give it a bit more voice and a bit more voice and just began to hope really slowly in, in small baby steps that maybe I could, maybe I wasn't stuck here in this position, maybe I could actually manifest what I really wanted, omens, synchronicity, signs, events, call them whatever you want, began to happen in my favour. Bang, 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 in a very short and rapid succession. Um, I won't go into the more detail. I've outlined them all in my book, The Secret of the Alchemist, um, if you're interested in that period of my life and after meeting uh, Paolo, um, you can read it there. But the net result was that I did leave publishing. I did start my own business, and we became the, one of the largest independent digital agencies in Australia. It was extremely successful. I was a founding member. I was one of the one of the directors of the business. We employed 75 staff. And I cannot tell you the difference between the position I was in when I met Paolo and, and that. But that happened in a very short space of time, a period of three or four years. And um, I attribute it fully and completely to the awakening of the voice within my heart again that Paolo uh, encouraged. I'm looking back now retrospectively, I can see that when he said he spent a day of his time doing his alchemy, alchemy magic on my behalf, some, he cleared something in my psyche. Yeah, well, I remember reading about it, and I... Um... I, at first, I had the same <laughs> the same response that you did. Like she got the, the ring, and <laughs> you got this concept. But then, when I, when I thought more about it, though, he spent a whole day focused on you. And I've I've been thinking about, you know, have I ever spent a whole day? I mean, like a whole day. I woke a whole day focused on a person. It's a huge gift. I mean, it really is a huge gift. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that it latterly in the last, um, so that was nearly 30 years ago, and then uh, somewhere between 20 and 15 years ago, um, I actually, and it's in my book as well, I talk about this towards the end of my book, I actually decided that if, if that was possible for Paolo, um, now knowing what I knew, because I'd spent quite a lot of time studying alchemy, spent a lot of time retransforming my own understanding of the universe and, and love and the power of love, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. Um, I realized that there is a power, and the Paolo had discovered that power. And when you read The Alchemist, and you particularly go towards the end of the story, and we'll talk about the story in a moment, um, of Santiago when he's um, – sort of uh, not arguing, but he's uh, he's grappling with the universe, the wind and the desert and the sun, and he's having this deep conversation about love and the role of love and the role of love in, in, in us as humans and in the universe and so on. That is alchemy magic. That is Paolo saying, this is what I've learned and this is what I can do. And I made that decision that I wanted to learn to be able to do that as well. And so my book, The Secret of the Alchemist, is my story of my journey, but also the, the story of Santiago, and in a way that also the story of Paolo, and how together all these things merge and tell us that actually we can become the alchemist in our world. We can draw upon the power of unconditional love, 
using the principles of ancient alchemy to shift our uni- the universe around us. So we'll talk a bit more about that later. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good time to be shifting the universe yeah, <laughs> as well yeah, as yeah, ourselves. No, There's no better time. I remember for me, uh, I had copy of the book, The Alchemist, on my bookshelf for years. I don't remember who gave it to me, but it was on my bookshelf for many years until something within me said, I've got to pull this off the shelf. I don't know. I, it was just really unusual. And then, and then, you know, back when I was doing church, I did a I did a whole summer sermon series on the Alchemist, like seven or eight weeks on it. It was really, it was really great. We just kind of delved into the book. So that was back in 2015, and I really appreciated your book. You did you did walk us through the story. But for people who are listening now, who may have read the Alchemist, but might have been a while ago, could you kind of like walk us through the story, kind of at a in, the segments of it so people can catch up? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I haven't learned it off by heart yet, but I I know most of the key key episodes, of course, I've studied it for so many years. But for for those who have not read it at all, it's a fable. It's it's just a story. It's fiction. And if you want to find it in a bookshop, then don't bother going to the self-help book section. It's going to be in fiction under... Kalo, C-O-E-L-H-O, um, Kalo, Palo Kalo, which means Paul White, by the way, for those of you who like translations, that's the Portuguese, Portuguese for Paul White. Um, and um, so Dan Brown, Paul White, not much difference, really. <laughs> the interesting thing about it is that it is written by Paulo Kalo um, not long after he went on a pilgrimage um, to San, Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, which apparently the people who who run hostels on that that pilgrimage route say that almost a hundred times more people now walk the pilgrimage because of Paolo Kahlo, um and and his book. So he went on that pilgrimage, and it was a transformational moment for him. And it's in a book that he's written called The Pilgrimage. So it was written after that, and it's the story of a boy, a shepherd boy, who's actually on a pilgrimage of sorts. And the pilgrimage is um, the boy lives in Spain. He lives in Andalusia, which is right in the southern tip of Spain. He's a shepherd boy. um, And he was going to go, well, he did go to a seminary to become a priest, but he rejected that. He wanted to travel. Um, So he took control of his own destiny just a little bit, and it was while he was caring for sheep, one night he fell asleep in an abandoned chapel where a sycamore tree was growing up through the roof. That's how destroyed the chapel was. And as he fell asleep there, he had a dream. And in the dream, a child, a girl child, in fact, comes to him and said, you have treasure waiting for you if you are just prepared to go and find it. And the treasure is at the pyramids. So he begins to follow her towards the pyramids. And every time he has the dream, he wakes up before he actually discovers where the treasure is. Um, he decides that this is really bothering him. Um, it's disturbing him. It's, it's um, awakened like it did for me. It's awakened uh, a curiosity that ha- you know, has, have I really, am I really fulfilling the life 
or the destiny, as it said, as it's called in the Alchemist. Am I really fulfilling my true destiny, my personal legend, whatever you want to call it? And so he goes and sees a gypsy. The gypsy says, yeah, you need to go to the pyramids. And then just as he's about to almost give up, um, think it's just a fancy uh, of his imagination, he meets a guy called Melchizedek, an old man. And those of you who know your Bible will know who Melchizedek is. Um, and I won't go into that now, but I do um, study that quite you know, in depth in my book, The Secret of the Alchemist. Um, and Melchizedek says, "Yes, you need to go to, um, you need to go to the pyramids. Oh, and by the way, along this journey, you're going to learn some deeper truths about life, and eventually about alchemy itself. Um, and there is going to be he, is, he um, almost uh, sets the scene for Santiago's journey of not just." a pilgrimage to the pyramids, but also of transformation. He is going to go through a transformative experience, and there's allusions to that in the story. So he sells his sheep, gets on a boat, goes to Algiers, North Africa, and immediately he arrives, he loses everything. He's robbed. Yeah, great. What it's a great story. stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's just let's lose everything on from the word go. Boy, how many of us can identify yes, with that. It's a very identifiable story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the hero's journey. Those of you who are fans who have studied Joseph Campbell, I talk about this quite a bit in my book as well, will know that Santiago is on the hero's journey. And it involves leaving home, leaving the safe place, going out. You've got to discover the life for yourself. So he loses everything. Um, he manages to end up at a, a shop called the Crystal Shop where he begins to do work for the crystal merchant and then crystallizing cut glass crystal that you drink tea out of or wine out of. And um, in the Crystal Shop, he learns lots of things about life again and himself and his heart. And he begins to very slowly learn to begin to listen to his heart and that's part of his journey. And then he leaves the crystal shop and goes off through the desert with several people. And as he's going off through the desert, he's introduced to alchemy by a guy called the Englishman. And if you read my book, I'll I tell you what, in, in a metaphorical sense, what the, what the Englishman stands for. It's a branch of alchemy. But the branch of alchemy that Santiago latches onto is taught to him not by the Englishman, but by the camel driver of the camel train that's taking them across the desert. And it's an, an Arabic version of alchemy, which is one of the schools that survive uh, without books, really, um, almost word of mouth. And it, it's, it's all about listening to the universe through one's intuition. And that's what Santiago begins to discover. Eventually, they arrive at the oasis where he falls in love with Fatima, where he has an inspirational moment when he's watching two hawks and he realizes that the oasis is about to be attacked by greedy bandits. And he tells the chiefs of the oasis, this is what's going to happen. Of course, it, it does. And he's rewarded with gold and treasure. And he reaches that moment when he's really quite rich. He's prospered. He's discovered love in the form of Fatima, 
He's discovered that he can listen to his heart. He's discovered that he can be a seer. He can see the future and things that are going to happen. He's learned to observe omens and synchronicity and, and all those. And he's really, really comfortable. And, you, you know, the book could end there. if you if, Exactly, yeah. And for many of us, that is where our story exactly, ends. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if we get there. <laughs> if you manage to get that far, if we're still alive... <laughs> And that's where Santiago is, and that's when he meets the alchemist. And I have to say, I've met lots and lots of people on a spiritual journey, and many of them get as far as the oasis. Few meet the alchemist. And I think that's what's the most challenging bit of the story. And a lot of people, when you quiz them, oh, have you read The Alchemist? And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did you take away from The Alchemist? Well, I learned to follow my dreams, that everything is possible, that um, I should you know, try and resurrect the hopes and aspirations that I had from my youth and, and re-pursue them and so on and so on. And all of those things are true and wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But it's missing the point. Mm-hmm of the story. Paolo is making a really specific point here, is that when we feel we have arrived, that is the most dangerous moment in our life. So interesting. And I I mean spiritually arrived as Mm -hmm. well as materially arrived, because there's more. In the words of a wonderful song by Paul Simon, um, there's further to fly. And the alchemist comes along and challenges us and says, there is further to fly. Are you prepared to risk everything that you've learned so far, everything that you've achieved up to this point? Are you prepared to to now risk that again to discover your real true treasure? And fortunately, Santiago says yes. And off they go, the alchemist and Santiago through the desert, and the alchemist uses the opportunity to to give um, the final encouragement to Santiago to become an alchemist in his own right. And I won't spoil the story. Yeah. Shall I? Shall I do a spoiler for Don't those who haven't spoiler. read it? No, I think. No, I all think right. Should, yeah, leave it. Okay, out he there. does arrive at he does arrive at the pyramids, and he does find out where the treasure is. And, of course, it's not where you would expect it to be. Yeah, it never is. But the the point of the whole fable is that um, Santiago discovers a connection with himself, with the universe, and that's a connection through love, um, the power of love, and that that power lives within his own heart, has always been there in his own heart, and the hero's journey going back to Joseph Campbell again, is the journey down, 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 where we open and open and open, as the lotus in Buddhism um, says, till we find the Christ point, the the Buddha um, within ourselves, And that, it, those are symbols of the, the power of unconditional love, which was there all the time. And that's our treasure. That's our, that's the power that we can harness to change the, the world around us. So that's what I basically teach in my book, Secret of the Alchemist. That's my interpretation um, 
of the power of of the original book, the, the Alchemist. Yeah, I want to talk about what the secret is, but before we do that, I really love your observation that most of us, if if we're fortunate, we we get to the oasis and we think that's that's it. Like we've like we've got life now and and we've we've got it and and he goes on to lose <laughs> everything again and his experience uh going forth in in the desert was just so very interesting um communing with love and whatnot. So um I do remember reading the book and going, okay, what do I do with this? <laughs> What do I do with this? There are so many spiritual themes in it, so many spiritual themes that you can draw out from each each aspect, each encounter he has. There's so many things to learn, so many ways to see ourselves in that. So, but you went further with your book and discerned for yourself what the secret was in The Alchemist. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, um, and this is this is the most controversial thing I think that I say. Um, I I have pursued many, not all, routes to a spiritual life over the years. From the age of eighteen, I'm sixty eight years old now, so that's a good fifty year journey. I've looked at most. Um, of the roads to spirituality. I've tried several of them. And um, what I discovered was that most of the traditional metaphorical frameworks, and I do emphasize the word metaphorical frameworks because let's not kid ourselves, there there is a big difference between reality and metaphor. And many many of us get confused um, to our peril. Um, And... Uh, I thought there must be something in the original story of The Alchemist that could help me. And it was partly because of Joseph Campbell and my understanding that all the great myths, he said, all the great myths of all the great cultures of the world throughout centuries that had no connection with each other, the most common theme, the most common theme of of their most important mythology is this thing called the hero's journey. Um, and this is, you know, it's sort of like an, an omni-myth. It's it's um, a myth that keeps reoccurring and reoccurring. And so I thought I thought about that and I thought, where where does that come from? And what I and so I took the plunge really and went back to the story of the alchemist and, and said to the universe, show me what am I missing here? And, and of course it's when you look, when you look at it, when you think about it, it's blindingly obvious. What is the book called? It's, it's called, called The Alchemist. The Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> Get with the program. Oh, wake up, wake up. Um, who talks about alchemy these days? In a in terms of alchemy being a valid and a contributing ancient wisdom to our modern understanding of life. Hardly anybody, Mm -mm. nobody. So I I really felt on my own. I I really thought, well, I'm paving a way here that's probably not been trodden by anybody for a long time. And then, oh, you know, wonders of wonders, I discovered Professor Carl Jung had studied alchemy. Now, I knew about 
Carl Jung's psycho the theory of psychoanalysis and the self, the true self, the collective unconscious, the, the unconscious mind and the conscious mind and archetypes and so on. So I did have a background in that. I had studied that extensively. What I didn't know until I studied a bit more is that for the last 30 years of his life, Carl Jung was a student of alchemy. And that encouraged me. So he was a student of the actual yes. process of alchemy, yes. which is turning lead to gold? Yes. Okay. In the spiritual sense of alchemy. Okay. All right. Because what Carl Jung discovered was this synergy, this very close. And he's written books on the subject. If you, In my book, I've got a whole bibliography of, of various works of Carl Jung that I recommend that you can read um, on, on, his, on his studies of alchemy. He actually wrote a whole book about psychology and alchemy. And it, and the, the key theme that he discovered was true of, of his theory and of the alchemist's transformation, that all things are created, if you want to think of things as being created, uh, to transform. It is their natural destiny for all things to transform, human beings being no exception in that. So when we long for something better, when we aspire to be better, when we, um, some people say, you know, um, transformation is all about becoming a better version of myself. I actually disagree with that, but that's not a bad place to start. I would actually say that transformation is not about becoming a better version of yourself. It's actually becoming your true self. Your true self is your best version of yourself. So it's not like we've got to become something else. We've got to become what we actually are and stop being what we're not. Mm-hmm. That's transformation, and that's what Carl Jung talked in his process of individuation um, and the journey to the true self. And so he began to study the parallels between the teachings of an ancient alchemist and his own theories, and he realized that he, they were all on the same page. So deep, hidden, deep within the codified, hidden symbols, um, magical um, whatevers of, of, of alchemy, he discovered there was some, just some really deep basic truths about the nature of life, which transcends religion, transcends any other theories and in many ways it's not even a theory it's just a a reality as far as Carl Jung saw it and that is that in the in the heart of everything there is this thing that the alchemists originally called the prima materia and that prima materia is the energy the spark the force of all of life if you want to go to the extreme Prima materia is the origin of the universe. Mm-hmm. If you need to call it God, that's fine. Have no issue with that. Neither would Carl Jung have any issue with that. If that's how you need to interpret, that's fine. But the ancient alchemists didn't call it God. They called it prima materia. They actually identified it as a as a force. Star Wars fans will love that. May the, yes. may the, may the force <laughs> never be with be. you. But the force has a nature. It has a character. 
it has a personality, which really plays into identifying it as a deity of, of some description. Not that you there's anything wrong with identifying it or personifying it in the deity. If that helps, that's fine. But the ancient alchemists identified it just as a force. And the for that force, prima materia, the nature of that force is really simple. It's unconditional love. Now, you've met people, Carol, as I've met and many of your listeners will have met people who've had near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. What is the one thing, the common theme that they all come back to this world expressing their experience is it not that they've had an encounter with unconditional yes love? it is yep and that love wasn't a person per se love wasn't you know they maybe have faith in jesus or buddha or krishna or whoever um and it initially appears in that form but then it transcends that form uh, the best like, most common experience is it's a bright light it's a it's an absorbing, glaring, bright light, but it has a character, it has a nature, and the only way they can all describe it is unconditional love. A love that accepts them, embraces them, doesn't judge them, um, almost transcends the human need to, to label and to sort and to identify things. It, it's all-encompassing. The alchemist's believe that that is at the very source of all life. We come from that. It exists here now. It keeps all things going. And eventually we'll go back to it. Now, whether we get reincarnated, who knows? Yeah. They, they didn't have any opinion on that. They were more interested with the here and now. One of the things I love about Urquhart Tolle and his teaching, and, and this would again would resonate with, with anyone who studied alchemy, it's all about the now. And the interesting thing about the now is that we don't have to wait to experience that force. We can experience that force now, in the now, in this moment. And that the, the exciting thing about the teaching of alchemy, and Urquhart Tolle um, doesn't talk about alchemy, but he talks about the now, is that it's timeless. That in the now, there is no past, present, and future. It's all one. It all belongs to the now. And if we can learn to live in that timeless now, then, and we can, and we can discover the power of unconditional love, then that is the philosopher's stone of the alchemist. They they gave it a name that they, the way they concretized or materialized that understanding of what I just described was the philosopher's stone. Again, it's just a symbol. There is no thing as a philosopher's stone. If you if you find the philosopher's stone, just let me know. <laughs> That's um, a, you'd be the first one I call. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you my postal address. <laughs> just if, if you can get it on Amazon, just let you know. Give me the link. I'll buy it tomorrow. Um, but the the shock, everybody, 
you know, again, everything is metaphor with alchemy. Everything is metaphor. Everything is paradox. We can talk about paradox in a minute. Everything is not what you think it is. If you think it's this, it's not that it's this. It's something else. And that's what I love about alchemy. It will not allow itself to be pinned down or turned into a doctrine or even into a teaching um, which makes my life really difficult because I have to spend most of my life trying to explain it to people. <laughs> well, I mean, um, if you were to if you were to define alchemy, what would you say? Is it tra- transformation or coming to back to the self? Or it's all of those things. Yeah. Um, alchemy, in, in in and of itself, does not exist. It's not. It's it's intangible. What it is, if you like, it's a view. It's a a a new world view. It's a way of viewing the the reality of life and the things that that make up our life and the reality of what our life is. It's a a way of viewing it that releases and enables us to harness the power that is in life. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing more than that. And it's transient. Uh, Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I say, I've got it. I know what alchemy is. And by the end of the day, I'm none the wiser. Okay. And it's, and I think that's why when you think about The Alchemist, the book, just talking about the book for a moment sure. by Paolo Kahlo, and you think about its amazing success, there is a clue to why that book became such an amazing success. And Paolo gave it away. He gives it all away freely, and yet it's almost as if we're, our eyes are blinded to what he's trying to tell us. So there's a there's a book called The Valkyries by Paolo Kahlo. And it's the story of when he visited the um, Mojave Desert in Arizona and um, with his wife, not long after the the book, the his book, The Alchemist, was first published in Brazil. Now, when his book was first published, the reason I'm telling this story is that it's it's an illustration of of alchemy in practice. When he wrote the book originally, it um, wasn't a great success. In fact, his original publisher gave him back the rights Hmm. and said, I can't do anything with this book, Paolo, and yet I feel it's worthy of more than I've been able to do with it, so I'm going to give it you back. Now, most of us would accept that as a failure. You know, he was a, a lyricist. Paolo was a lyricist. He was writing pop lyrics in Brazil. That was one of his jobs at the time. And, you, you know, most of us would have said, I'll just stick with that. I'll give up this being a world-famous writer because it's not going to happen. But he didn't. He, he and his wife went off into the desert. And you can believe the story of the Valkyries, if you wish, the problem that you've got with Paolo is that fact and fiction kind of blend to the point that you don't really know what's fact and fiction. It's the spirit of what he's trying to tell you that's the most important bit. And he has this amazing experience in the desert where he meets his his guardian angel, he meets his spirit guide, whatever you want to call it, but he has this eureka moment where he realizes that all things are one, all things are connected as he's written in The Alchemist, and that he, the boy who is Paolo, who is Santiago, can manifest 
his heart's desire, which is to be one of the most successful writers of all time. And um, when he gets back to Brazil, he he finds a new agent and the agent finds a new publisher and they sell half a million copies. Mm. And then it gets picked up by HarperCollins and it becomes a global sensation. Mm -hmm. So so that's alchemy. Um, Do you have to use the formula that that Paolo used in the Valkyries in his experience? No. Do you have to use the formula that I describe in my book, The Secret of the Alchemist, to manifest magic and miracles in your life? No. So what do you do? Well, you've got to find alchemy for yourself. Alchemy will give you some guidance. It will direct you along certain paths. There are certain realizations. For me, the most important thing that I discovered through alchemy was that the force that I can harness and use in my life is called unconditional love. Okay. Yeah. So um, I want to focus on unconditional love in our second segment. Um, I do know that one of the things I think that people can really kind of sink their teeth into are those three stages of transformation that you talk about. And I I really like those uh, when it comes to alchemy and and kind of what the heart of the alchemist is about, because it's something that I think people can just really identify those stages and how we move through those stages or get stuck in one or the other and how those are kind of stages of transformation. Can you talk about that some? Life seems to present us when we go on a spiritual journey. And by the way, by a spiritual journey, I mean in pursuit of our dream or in pursuit of what I call true empowerment. So just want to quickly for a second go back to Carl Jung. Carl Jung, when he talked about individuation and transforming and and finding the true self, the alchemists had a process for that, a spiritual process. In its simplest form, it it comprises of three stages, the black phase, the white phase, and the red phase. And the metaphor of the alchemy lab, where they take a substance like lead and apply heat to it, these were the three stages metaphorically that they're describing, but they're also stages that are not taking place just in the crucible of the lab. They're actually occurring inwardly in the, in the, in the soul of the alchemist. So life seems to throw us these three stages and how we re- respond to them, how we, whether we use them to transform or whether we use them to defeat us, or we allow them to defeat us is entirely up to us. In my book, the reason I latch on, and I know we're going to talk about unconditional love later, but the reason why I latch on to unconditional love is that the way I got through the three stages is that I continuously called on the power of unconditional love to help me through them. Yeah, yes. I mean, you can't do it on your own. Exactly. And I just put that out there, you know, if anybody's thinking of trying this at home... (laughs) (laughs) Don't do this at home. (laughs) Don't do it on your own. Get all the help you need and don't be ashamed of asking for help. Ask anybody for help. Doesn't matter who it is. Just ask anybody for help. Yeah, love shows up in so many ways. Ah, absolutely. And if you can't find anybody, just go to the source. Sure. 
And you what you'll discover amazingly is that it, it, it will be there before you can blink an eye. Um, the black stage is um, what many people call the dark night of the soul. And I know people go through various dark nights of the soul. Um, grief is a really good typical example of that. The grief of the loss of a loved one, the grief, grief of loss of an identity through redundancy or job loss, the grief of um, complete poverty is, is another one. Um, there are lots of ways that it manifests itself. And one of the things that you can do when you're in what feels like this dark night where nothing has any meaning, nothing, everything that, that you thought had purpose no longer serves to nourish you anymore and you feel alone and lost and in the deepest abyss, if you are prepared to call on unconditional love at that moment, a light will appear and it will help you transform. One of the things you have to realize that you've got two choices in the darkness. You can embrace it, and lots of people have written about this. I'm not, I'm not unique in this one. You can em embrace the darkness and ask, the, ask love, light, to reveal what do I need to learn from this? What, what can I take out of this to change my life for the better? Or you can allow it to swamp you. Eventually, most people, even when they get help, emerge eventually. Um, but you can emerge having learned nothing, and time quite often is a healer of that. Or you can emerge having discovered something. And the alchemists would say it's important to use the dark night, the black phase, to discover something really important. And the thing that we need to discover in order to perfect our transformation is we need to discover that inner, inner self that we have built these false personas around. Jungian, Jungian students will be going, yeah, 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 we know what, we know what Colin's on about. So the, the personas that we build that are put on us by our society, by ourselves, by our need to be liked, by our need to be loved, by our need, whatever our need is, we build these layers and layers. Well, what the dark night of the soul does is it strips the layers, strips them, strips them, strips them, strips them. And I guess what's unique about me to some degree is that when I um, faced in my life a person who I didn't like very much, and that was me, um, I, my self-esteem wasn't that great, maybe, or um, the persona that I created myself was didn't work. It hurt people. It didn't. It didn't help me find the love that I wanted to create. It actually had the opposite effect. So when I when I realised that I actually chose to do the black the dark night of the soul, I actually made a decision. Gosh, I must have been crazy. <laughs> would you would you call that like deep shadow work? Permanent shadow work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I left. I was a high school teacher, and I left the job. And I was lucky to be part of a community that were prepared to support me. There were two or three people in there, including my wife, 
who was prepared to support me because I said, I want to go, I want to go and find out why I'm this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I don't like this person very much. And I want peace. Yeah. I want to be at peace with myself. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I've read this book called The Dark Night of the Sun, and I've read this this other book by a guy called Thomas Merton who did this, and I want to do this. Right. I want, um, gosh, would I do it now? <laughs> Would I? Um, I don't think I could do it now. I think it was the right time to do it when I was in my mid-20s, late-20s early 30s and and I just said yeah I'm going to do this and I I would set a time aside each day I I stopped doing a demanding teaching job I took on a manual task and I was I actually lived apart from being married I was I lived like a monk literally and lots of people are now teaching about that as well there's, there's several books about live 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 like a monk or think like a monk or and I strongly recommend it, not permanently, but I'd strongly recommend it if you want to tackle the dark night of the soul because there's the fewer distractions and demands that you have, the better. So you're getting, you're getting down to like who you are at your, your, your true essence. Facing death, Yeah, I would call it. Okay. So rather than waiting for death to confront us, sort of going in and, and facing it. And some people who have who go through chronic illness, many people who, who suffer with cancer and others know exactly what I'm talking about. It feels like what I'm describing. Okay. And um, that's what it felt like. And um, what I discovered in the start nice, there was a there was there is a person, there was there was a, a self. Um, it's just that he was really angry. I mean seriously angry. I mean, dangerously angry, uncontrollably angry. And this self was the one that had been breaking into my conscious existence, right. mm-hmm. facing the dragon, doing the shadow work. So it was extreme shadow work, for want of a better description. And I gave that self as much time as it needed or he needed to express himself. And it involved a lot of screaming, involved a lot of shouting. Usually when I was on my own, I would just go out into quiet places where I didn't think anybody was going to send, ring, ring for an ambulance and get me you know, certified. Um, and I just let him scream. But I did, because of Thomas Merton mostly, I did know that because Merton, as you know, crossed the bridge between Christianity and Buddhism. He was the groundbreaker of that from, from, from a Catholic Christianity point of view. And he identified that for him, in the end, if he had to describe God, it was love. And so I called on that love because I'd been reading Merton and I discovered that love was prepared to listen to the angry person within me. And I almost stood back and let them have a conversation, which went on for a long time, several months, until in the end the angry me um, felt heard. 
so he had vent, vented his feelings and, and so on. I had no idea why he was so angry, why that self, why that shadow part of me. I no, didn't have a clue, except I was angry. And, um, and that was the end of the black phase. And just as that phase began to, uh, as I came out of it and began to think, yes, there is, I do have this vulnerable person within me and I am prepared to those around me who I love to expose that vulnerability. I'm not going to put up a front anymore. I'm not the altogether guy that I wanted everybody to think I was. I'm, in fact, I'm far from altogether. I'm pretty vulnerable and I'm pretty angry, uh, but that's okay. I'm not going to project that any longer. So I stopped projecting. So that was a relief in, a, in and of itself. Um, and then somebody else came into my life at that point, a guy called Dr. Frank Lake. And he was an amazing uh, psychiatrist in the UK at the time, in the early 70s. And he had perfected primal integration or rebirthing. Um, and I was just very fortunate. He came across, through my wife, actually. Um, I came to, to discover him. Um, she went away on a weekend that he ran and came back raving about what she discovered about her life in the womb and her early childhood and so on. I thought, okay, this is for me. Maybe this is what the vulnerable me needs. And it was. It was amazing. And what I discovered through that is that um, memories just came flooding back. And one of the key memories from my childhood was because one of the things that, that primal therapy or primal integration or rebirthing does, it enables you to, almost through a process of self-hypnosis, rediscover buried, buried memories so that you can process them again. Um, they're no longer buried and hidden and in control of your psyche. You can address them and give them voice. And I discovered that my mother, when I was a toddler, two or three years old, was diagnosed with... Um, epilepsy severe epilepsy and one of the one of the things she did to protect me uh, when she knew one of these bouts was about to come on because she would get very violent um, as she would lock me in a cupboard under the stairs in the house where we lived for I don't know how long but it was dark and I couldn't get out and all I could hear was this ranting and raving and horrific noises outside eventually she was diagnosed and neighbor discovered her on the floor one day discovered me in the cupboard let me out and doctors got involved and she was treated and and it was resolved but during my the rest of my you know um, growing up um that incident those incidents were never addressed and did you have so memories I, of that I had no memory until yeah. I did the until I did the primal regression. Yeah, and that you call that the white phase because it's the purification. So it's the the phase of identifying the self and why the self needs to be why the self is wounded, why the self is in pain, why the self is often angry, and the white phase is allowing love to to identify what's required and allowing love to heal. Okay. It's a heal. It's a healing. It's a healing. Yeah. It's definitely a healing. And that was the white phase in alchemy. Right. Yeah. So 
I'm thinking, okay, alchemy, alchemy knows all this. Alchemy actually has almost a, a bit of a blueprint. It's a way of seeing our human existence in a, in, in a process. So what's next? And the next part of the process is the red phase, and that is to begin to live life from the new self. Mm-hmm. So this is the process. This is the final stage of individuation that Jung um, talks about. So allowing the new self. And the, the amazing thing about the new self is that the new self is still vulnerable, um, particularly vulnerable. Vulnerability is really, really, really important for all of us to embrace. So if that vulnerability is embraced. It in my I'm just writing a course, by the way, in all of this at the moment. And I just wrote the other day that our vulnerability lives in that vacuum. Um, love lives in that vacuum that's that's created by our vulnerability. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. And that we we need to let our vulnerability remain so that love can be fully expressed. Um, anybody who's defensive, who's antagonistic, who's who's aggressive, or it, it is not vulnerable. They're protecting by that behaviour. They're protecting their vulnerability. The moment we're prepared to let those things go and, and be vulnerable, but allow love into that space, then that's the beginning of action. That's when we can begin to love as unconditionally as we have been loved. Yes, yeah, so um, I want to wrap this this episode up and keep keep uh, this dialogue going for the next episode. But the way you're just talking about this black, white, and red phase, and also about vulnerability, you know, there's so much craziness in the world right now. I mean, there 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 looks like maybe it's always been crazy. I know it's always been crazy, but it just looks like we're we're really getting crazier and and we're seeing everybody's cover up of their vulnerability we're seeing everybody from the outside all those layers and they're always there but they just seem to be acting up all over the place now or at least we're seeing it more on the news and whatnot so this is just a wonderful wonderful uh, tool for transformation and for actually looking at the world i mean the we're, I think we're going through this. Some of us are kind of awakening and seeing that that this uh, this process of alchemy is something that we want to enter, enter into. We may be in our black phase now. But I, I want to invite our listeners, as we kind of tie a bow around this episode, our listeners to kind of look at this black phase, white phase, and red phase in their life. And do you, do you, do you think we go through these phases like over and over again, or is it just like one big process we go through? I think it is cyclical. I think the first time we go through it, if we're prepared to learn from it and use it as a transformational process, um, I don't think we have to go through it to the same depth again. So I think it it can be a one-time process. And then when symptoms reappear, we can fall back on the initial process. In other words, okay, yeah. I don't believe I need to go and spend another year out and go through sure. the black phase all over again. And, um, one of the differences between, oh, I'm really going to get into trouble now and <laughs> we're going to get comments, you're going to get comments. I love meditation. I use meditation. But if meditation doesn't 
fix the problem, it's just like an aspirin. And you're going to need to take it every day. And it helps the pain go away. And then you get up tomorrow and guess what? You've got to do it again. What I discovered with alchemy is it fixes it. And I heard there's lots of teachers out there who say, oh, we don't need fixing. And I, yeah, you know, there's an element of Jungian thinking, which I totally agree with, that says, no, we don't need fixing. We just need to get back to who we really are. So I will qualify that. But alchemy will fix you. Okay. All right. So that's this is this is great. This is a really this is a this is a this is the the what the philosopher's stone. Um, the because uh, so many of us on the spiritual path, you know, we talk about, you know, we're. Uh, on the path they kind of fall off and on the path and we all these judgments and these defenses come up and this and then and then we kind of come back to we call it god or spirit or source or whatever and 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 then we have another episode and then we remember who we are and we meditate and we you know so anyway it, it, it that's not wrong that's not wrong that's that that's one process and you're saying that alchemy is a process that brings us to a truly form, transformed state. So we're not constantly going on and off, but we may have to revisit it, but not as deep as before. Is that right? Yes, I think the reason why I, I found such a soulmate in, in Carl Jung mm-hmm. is that he he genuinely believed that anyone who who passed th- through with commitment, his process of psychoanalysis and reach the point of individuation didn't need to keep doing it over and over and over. Yes. And, and so yeah. he and I share that, that standpoint. And where do we get that from? We, we, we've both got that from alchemy. That's exactly what the alchemists believed. So when they're turning metaphorically lead into gold, it's not like I know everybody says it's not about the end goal, it's the process. You know, that we should we're just living in the process. Well, the alchemist said, yeah, the process is really important, but actually there is an end goal, and it is to create the philosopher's stone, it is to create gold, it is to create well-being and happiness and joy and wealth and whatever it is that your heart desire and, and fulfill your dream. All, all I'm saying, and Carl Jung is saying is that it is possible in this lifetime for those who are committed to transformation in the way that he described and the way that alchemy describes to arrive. Um, And here's the thing, but once you arrive, that is another dimension, which very few people have ever entered into. But when you do enter into that dimension, it comes with a whole new set of responsibilities that most people go to their grave never even never even entering into an understanding of what those responsibilities are. There are those that we see in the world and who I admire immensely. I'm not going to name names, but some of them are celebrities who got their own TV shows and so on, um, who, who have arrived to some degree and now see their mission um, to explain to other people you know, what, what life can be if they are prepared to, to make that commitment. But 
what I'm saying I know is really controversial amongst some mindfulness circles. I'm almost blaspheming in a way of saying it is possible to be fixed and it is possible to arrive. Well, no, you know, it's I, I'm so with this. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying I, I've gotten there, but I do see this is the story. We'll get into this next, okay? Because I want to kind of end this at this time. But to, to me, this is the story of the Christ, or this is the story of of um, the 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 man. Jesus, I know we've talked about Christianity and whatnot before, but to me, to me, whether it was an actual historical thing or not, to me, he was the, the man who uh, alchemized <laughs> to to what we call the Christ and said, and you can too. So, yeah, this is the path for all of us. Yes, and you can too. And you can too. Yeah. And every greater things. Yes, yes. It's not stopping here. Colm, thank you so much for this episode. We're gonna uh, we're going to have another episode focusing on unconditional love and whatever else we didn't talk about. This is fascinating. I really appreciate your being here. And everyone who's listening, please give some consideration to the alchemy in your life and the black phase and the white phase and the red phase. So I now close the spiritual forum. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.